Hello and welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Medical Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the South East. And this is a podcast about general medicine in association with the education department at the Royal College of Physicians. And today we are going to talk about a case that I saw when I was on call last weekend. So are you ready? Yeah. So I was on call last weekend and the patient presented to, presented with a common problem that I see frequently and I thought it was important that we should recap. It was Sunday, it was 10 o'clock in the morning and I was called to the resuscitation department by the medical registrar concerned for a patient who was a known type 1 diabetic and presented with very high blood glucose levels. He was pretty confused and had persistent vomiting that had actually started three days prior to the admission. He had been in recess for three hours, but remained very unwell. His blood glucose was still very high in spite of treatment for diabetic ketoacidosis. Are you worried about this patient? Uh, yes. So he's got, uh, technically he's got a medical emergency um, and... That time frame of about three hours with no improvement yeah. um, is worrying. Yep. Okay, so I went along and I found out that his blood glucose level was 32 and his ketone level was 4.2. So both obviously very high. I was unable to get a history from the patient because he was confused and agitated. His wife was there with him and she said that he worked as a childminder and had potentially caught a bug, a vomiting bug from one of the children and had been vomiting for three days. She called 911 who had advised emergency admission to hospital. When I saw him, walked in, I could smell ketones in the air that typical DKA smell. And I'll tell you later where that smell comes from. So when I walked into recess, he looked really unwell. He was agitated and rolling around in the bed. So I followed the ABCDE assessment and yes, his airway was patent. He was groaning. His um, oxygen saturations were 99% on air. His blood pressure was 110 over 76. His heart rate was 110. He's had a catheter in situ at this point, which had exceptionally good urine output, although it wasn't accurately monitored at this time. His capillary refill was less than two seconds. Cardiovascular examination was normal. Respiratory examination was normal. His abdomen was soft and non-tender. Looking at his pupils, they were equal and reactive to light. And as I said, there was a strong smell of ketones. Okay, so after recapping the ABCDE, and I've gone through it, he looks really poorly. What's the key thing that you want to look at now? Um, so you've already given me the sugar. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the BM, which is, is still quite high, and the ketone. I'd like to know how acidotic he is. Yeah, okay. A um, couple of the concerning features of of that examination is that he is agitated yes um so you worry about whether there's any sort of cerebral involvement you know os osmotic shifts whatever um his blood pressure i think you said was 110 over 76 yes that's right um 
on the face of it, that might look okay. But in someone who's agitated, I'd expect it to be a lot higher. Yeah, okay. Um, good urine output. So yeah. that's reassuring, although we need to keep a close eye on it. But um, yeah, I want to know his pH. So a gas would be useful. Okay, so the pH is 6.98. And the normal levels for a pH is 7.35 to 7.45. So as you can see, the patient was very, very acidotic. His potassium was 5. His sodium was 126. His bicarb was four. And the normal bicarbonate level that you need is 22 to 26. So again, his bicarbonate is very, very low. And his base excess is minus 20. And we want it to be anything between minus two to plus two. So very abnormal blood gas. What do you think? Mm, so uh, first of all, I want to make sure it's actually his results are not taken yes, from a drip arm or something like that. Yeah, always good to um, check. But he's very acidotic uh, and he's not able to compensate at all. Um, so this is very concerning. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so there he's saying, I've given you a very worrying venous blood gas. What would be your next plan of action? So he needs to have lots of fluids. So make sure he's got a good wide ball cannular access. Um, he's already got the catheter, but... You want to drive that glucose down, um, get those ketones down as well. So he needs to have a sliding scale, getting adequate doses of insulin. Just going to stop you there. So sliding scale is actually something that we haven't used for a little while now. And we're now focused on fixed rate insulin infusion. But we will talk a little bit more about that in the next section. Good. I think a lot's changed since I uh, took this fellowship up. <laughs> yeah. The overriding things that he needs in he needs a rate of insulin going in to drive that sugar down um he needs adequate fluid replacement because he's in a hyper uh viscous state so he's at high risk of dehydration the fact he's already confused uh means that i'm you know that electrolyte imbalance that you've highlighted is having quite systemic effects on him yeah and a few things that you've mentioned there the abnormal electrolytes and the acidosis i thought it'd be really interesting and important for all our listeners to go back to basics and actually look at the physiology of what's going on in diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a triad of acidosis, ketosis, and hyperglycemia. Can you tell me any triggers of DKA? So in people who have existing diabetes like yes. this person, uh, missed doses of insulin, infection, um, particularly things that make them vomit, so they're not having adequate intake yeah infection misdoses of insulin uh drugs yeah so steroids in particular can drive that um glucose up some diuretics particularly thiazide diuretics in some individuals there's a theory that they may or may not contribute towards dka very high levels of alcohol so particularly in individuals who may abuse alcohol pancreatitis yeah. pregnancy can also make you more prone to developing dka and injury as well so quite significant traumatic injury can also trigger off DKA. So anything really that will trigger off that stress response can cause it to happen. Now, normally in a healthy individual who is not diabetic, your blood sugar rises and the pancreas releases insulin. Insulin then activates glycogenesis. And that's where glucose is stored as glycogen in the liver. 
And therefore, in a normal healthy individual, when their blood glucose's level is low, glucagon will activate the glycogen to break down and release glucose into the circulation, providing us with energy. However, in type 1 diabetes, when you don't have any insulin released from the beta cells at the islets of Langerhans, there is no glucose being stored as glycogen in the liver. Therefore, glucose is circulating in the bloodstream and it can't be used as energy. And the body needs to get energy from elsewhere. So where might it get the energy from? Uh, so it metabolizes muscle yep. or fatty stores. Yeah, absolutely. So the high levels of glucagon that you've got to try and activate the glycogen, obviously there's no glycogen to work on. So they work then on the liver and the adipose tissue. In adipose tissue, beta oxidation is stimulated and this breaks down lipids by a process of lipolysis. When you've got lots and lots of lipids being broken down, the byproduct of lipolysis is ketones. So when you've got very high levels of glucagon being released, but nothing to act on in the liver, its action in adipose tissue, fat cells, is beta oxidation. Beta oxidation is the breakdown of fat cells and lipids are broken down. And as a byproduct of lipids, you have ketones. This is where the ketones come from. The first ketone to be produced is acetoacetate, then acetone. Acetone is excreted by the lungs. And do you know what we find acetone in? No idea. So it's that classic pear drop smell. So you know when somebody has diabetic ketoacidosis and you can really smell that classic ketone pear drop smell, it's actually acetone which is being excreted by the lungs. What's interesting is that I've read a few papers on this and not everybody can smell ketones. So I know when I walk into research, I'm like, somebody's got DKA and somebody else is like, how do you know that? Some people can smell it, some people can't. As well as acetone, you've also got beta-hydroxybutyrate being produced as ketones. These are fed into the tricyclic cycle for energy. And that's where our energy comes from. Now, because you're breaking down huge amounts of fat, you lose lots of weight. And that's that typical presentation you see in a new type 1 diabetic is weight loss. Do you follow me so far? Yes. So, nearly finished with the interesting physiology, the ketone bodies that you've got generate hydrogen ions and ketoanions because they dissociate. If you've got lots and lots of hydrogen ions, what happens with all those hydrogen ions? Um, so it drives an acidosis. Exactly. So the body becomes acidotic. So your ketones come from fatty acid breakdown and your acidosis further comes from your ketone bodies generating these hydrogen ions. So you become acidotic ketotic, and obviously you've got your hyperglycemia. Now, as you can see in our patient, his bicarbonate levels were four, and they should be between 22 and 24. And the reason his bicarbonate levels are so low is because bicarbonate is a buffer. It's trying to bind to the hydrogen ions and buffer it to make it less acidotic. 
but because there's so much hydrogen ions, it's actually not that successful. And what happens is when the hydrogen ions bind to the bicarbonate, it produces excessive CO2. And that's going back to the Hendelson-Hasselbalch equation that we learned many, many years ago in medical school. So your byproduct is huge amounts of CO2, and that causes that excessive hyperventilation because you try to blow off the carbon dioxide. So patients can often present with hyperventilation as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is really a useful sort of pathophysiology recap. Yep. So we've got our patient who's got this very high blood glucose level. Where does all that excessive glucose go? Where does it come out? In the urine. Exactly. He's going to get some glycosuria, huge amounts of glucose in the kidney, which causes osmotic diuresis. So you lose water, you lose electrolytes, you become dehydrated and your renal function becomes impaired. So as the plasma further becomes hyperosmolar, you lose more sodium in your urine and potassium. So you become hyponatremic and you can become hypokalemic. And you also lose calcium phosphate and you can lose magnesium. And interestingly, our patient, when we looked at his routine blood tests, his calcium is 1.96. So he's losing that calcium in his urine. His sodium was 126. His phosphate was very low at 0.22. And the normal level is obviously 0.7. And his urea was 11.7 elevated. And his creatinine was 121. So he did have an acute kidney injury. And he'd lost all his electrolytes. So thinking about the pathology, you can see it happening in our patient. And it explains it. Going back to treatment then, the Joint British Diabetes Society Inpatient Care Group Guidelines for the Management of Diabetic Ketoacidosis are really what we follow now when we look at the management of DKA. This was last updated in 2013 and really this is what all hospitals should be following in the management of diabetic ketoacidosis. You were right, lots of fluid and insulin, but i just go through things as to try and structure it a little bit more. Now, let's look at it in four stages. So the first hour, when you've diagnosed your DKA and how have you diagnosed it, your DKA? What have you done? Um, so it's that triad that you've, you've explained. So you, you've got to be acidotic. So you've, yeah. you've got it on your gas. Um, you've got to be ketotic as well. Um, so you've measured ketones yes. um, and you need to have a high blood sugar. So again, BM uh, or blood gas. Yes, absolutely. And if you're, the, some of the blood glucose monitors will just say high, so you don't get an accurate level. So if that happens, always send a sample to the lab for proper estimation of what the blood glucose level is. Absolutely. Most hospitals now will also have mobile ketone measurements that you can do on this, or actually on the blood glucose monitor at the same time as well if not sometimes people will still measure it in the urine or can look at other markers so the presence of one or more of the following will indicate severe diabetic ketoacidosis blood ketones over six millimole per liter bicarbonate level less than five millimoles per liter a venous or an arterial ph below seven hypokalemia on admission under 3.5 millimoles per liter a GCS of less than 12, oxygen saturations below 92% on air. Obviously, that's assuming they have normal baseline respiratory function. 
systolic blood pressure less than 90, a pulse over 100 or below 60, and an anion gap. Can you remember what the anion gap is? Uh, so you want all your positive anions and the gas, so your H plus, uh, potass- sorry, hydrogen, sodium, potassium, uh, versus your chloride and bicarb. Yeah, so close. So anion gap is a difference between your positive cations, your sodium and your potassium, and your negative ions, your anions, which is chloride and bicarbonate. Normal anion gap is 8 to 16. If you have an anion gap over 16, which often happens in DKA, because obviously you've got huge amounts of your hydrogen ions, then your anion gap is increased. So if it's over 16, that is also a very acute concern. And any of these signs, the guidelines suggest they should be reviewed by a consultant physician and considered for referral to HDU for further management. So let's look at the four stages of management of DKA. Hour one, not to 60 minutes, give intravenous fluids. You commence IV, 0.9% of sodium chloride solution. If the blood pressure is less than 90 millimeters of mercury, systolic, you give 500 mils of 0.9% sodium chloride over 10 to 15 minutes. However, if this is not the case and the blood pressure is over 90 millimeters of mercury, you give 1,000 mils over one hour. And that's how you would start it. So the key thing in the first hour is to restore circulating volume because the patient's very, very, very dehydrated. Okay. So like you've said, ABC, cannula, you do a full clinical assessment. You might want to do blood cultures if you think infections triggered it, an ECG, chest x-ray if required, check the urine, and obviously on a cardiac monitor. If they're pregnant, always do a pregnancy test because every woman's pregnant until proven otherwise. So you restore that circulating volume. A thousand mils over the first hour, then a thousand mils over the next two hours, then a thousand mils over the next two hours. And the guideline is very clear as to the fluid replacement regime that we should use. Obviously, you want to be cautious in the young adults aged between 18 and 25. And why might that be? Well, because they're young, they might appear well. They can compensate yes. most severe illnesses uh, better than most. Yeah. Um, I suppose you don't want to correct things too quickly. Yes. You know, giving them too much sodium chloride over a short space of time can have side effects. Which one in particular are we concerned about in the young adult, the 18 to 25 bracket? Something cerebral? Yeah, cerebral edema. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a real concern, um, particularly in our young patients. And the sort of things that you want to look out for to look for cerebral edema are headache, decreased GCS, coma, seizure activity, pupillary changes. And that often happens in the first eight to 24 hours after treatment. It's just a really key thing to look at. So you're given your 0.9% sodium chloride. In addition to that, you must also give potassium. So you have to check their potassium levels. Obviously, if it's high, we're not going to be replacing the potassium. But if it's low, and it can often fall low very rapidly, then you have to replace their potassium because of the risks of hypokalemia and the effect that it can have on the heart. So always check their potassium. 
Now, at this stage as well, you also want to start fixed rate intravenous insulin. Now, this is one of the new things that was started in these guidelines. Prior to this, as you mentioned earlier, we used a sliding scale of insulin. Now we use 50 units of insulin at Trapid or Humulin S, mixed with 50 mils of 0.9% sodium chloride, and you infuse at a fixed rate of 0.1 unit per kilo per hour. We don't use bolus of intramuscular insulin anymore. Again, this is something that's changed. And if a patient normally takes a long-acting insulin, Lantus, Levomir, Tresaber, you continue that at the same time. So you've got your insulin started and you've got your fluid. So the next aim that you want to do is to try and clear the blood of ketones and suppress ketogenesis. So this is in the next stage and this is 60 minutes to six hours. Just to note, if the blood ketones are not falling by at least 0.5 millimoles per litre per hour, or if you're using plasma glucose, if that's not falling by at least 3.0 millimoles per litre per hour, then you must increase the insulin infusion rate by one unit per hour until the glucose or the ketones fall at the rate which you want them to. Key thing is to avoid hypoglycemia because as you know with insulin, you can drop that glucose quite quickly. So you're continuously rechecking the patient, continuously checking their new score and continually checking their urine outputs, making sure it's at 0.5 mils per kilo per hour. All the way through, you're checking their bicarbonate, you're checking their ketones. How often would you check their venous blood gas? Um, I think initially on the hour, if not every 30 minutes, uh, given there's some quite drastic differences. You know, any pH below seven is quite alarming. So you want to get one, you know, maybe even just a few minutes afterwards starting your infusions. Um, I think once they've normalized, you can then move from an hour to maybe every three hours. So yeah, so nearly it's two hours. So the guidelines are quite clear that you, um, after initial treatment, you do it at 60 minutes and then you do it at two hours and then two hourly. But you really, you know, if the patient is really poorly and clinically you think they're sick, you can do it more frequently. And we now use venous blood gases rather than arterial blood gases. It's kinder to the patient that you're not keep doing an arterial stab and also it's just as accurate. So you don't necessarily need to do arterial blood gases anymore unless they're severely hypoxic and you need to know what their oxygen levels are. Now, of note, if their ketones and glucose aren't falling as you'd expect, just check that that insulin pump's working. Because I know that we've been caught out before when the pump hasn't been either attached properly or it's not working. So it's always a key thing just to check. Okay. If the glucose falls below 14 millimoles per litre, you must give 10% glucose because you really need to avoid hypoglycemia. You run this alongside the sodium chloride at the same time. Okay. And again, you must check your potassium. And again, when you're doing your venous blood gas, your potassium's on there. So again, if their potassium's low, you must replace the potassium. Moving on to the next stage, which is at six to 12 hours, you're continuing your intravenous fluids, you're continuing insulin, and this is where you're checking for complications of treatment. So apart from cerebral edema, what are the other complications of treatment of DKA? Um, so fluid wise, you could be giving them too much fluid, uh, or too little. So you want to keep a close eye on their urine output. Yes. Um, maybe not in this chat, but people who are elderly, you want to also make sure you're not putting them into pulmonary edema. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I've always had in the back of my head that because they're in a hyperviscous state, they're also at risk of thromboembolisms. Yep. And that's actually a point in the guideline is that they say you must give low molecular weight heparin. Yeah, absolutely. Because I always think the, sh- the blood's really thick and sugary and gloopy. Therefore, they're going to be at higher risk of developing thromboembolism. So that's really important. Yeah. Yep. Frequently, they've also probably been ill before the actual presentation day. So they might have been immobile for a little while. Yeah. Um, and then kind of there's just the stuff you've alluded to in that you're, you are monitoring their electrolytes quite closely, but also if you're replacing potassium, sodium, all these kind of things, you, you, there is a chance you can overcorrect them as well. Um, so you want to make sure that you're giving them the right bag of fluid um, as and when. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of alluded to it there, is that you want, when you've actually started to treat and they're slightly getting better, you need to think about what's triggered it. So infection, chest infection, urine infection, pregnancy. So all the things that we talked about, you need to look at those and think what's triggered it and treat the underlying trigger as well for the diabetic ketoacidosis. Obviously, if they're not improving as expected, you need to get a consultant physician involved and also think about getting intensive care involved and also make sure that an early referral to the specialist diabetes team goes in. That's really, really important. So when you've carried on with your treatment, and you think they are improving, really at 12 to 24 hours, you should start to get resolution of the DKA. The ketonemia should have resolved and the acidosis should have resolved. So your ketone should be now less than 0.6 millimoles per liter and the venous pH should be over 7.3 for complete resolution of the DKA. If they're not getting any better, this is where intensive care and your specialists really very, very important. So early referral is really, really key. Obviously when a patient's eating and drinking normally, this is when you transfer to subcutaneous insulin. Ensure that the subcutaneous insulin is started before the IV is discontinued. So ideally you give the subcutaneous fast acting insulin at a meal and then discontinue the intravenous insulin an hour later. And this is just to ensure that you don't stop the insulin too soon and get a rebound hyperglycemia and activate the process all again, which can obviously be very, very dangerous. So we use huge amounts of normal saline in these patients. Are you worried about that? Yes and no. I mean, in the acute situation, I'm I'm not really concerned because um, as a guardian state, you know, fluid is most important step and the reason why it's first is get fluids into them and i suppose in the long run you and again in old practice looking at the sliding scale we always alternated fluids because sometimes you don't want to give them too much of the same thing um that's probably where my knowledge stops though okay so i'm just going to talk about something that bewilders me hyperchloremic acidosis now It's mentioned to me on a daily basis for many different reasons, but one of them is that when you give huge amounts of normal saline, hyperchloremic acidosis is a possible side effect of this. Normal saline, a bag of normal saline has 154 millimoles of chloride. Normal plasma has 98 to 102 millimoles of chloride. Huge difference. So if I'm giving you in DKA six, seven, eight liters of normal saline, you're getting huge amounts of chloride that you don't necessarily need. Now, the problem with normal saline is there's no potassium, calcium, glucose, magnesium, or bicarb in that normal saline. 
So therefore your pH of your blood plasma is not maintained. Your body produces excessive hydrogen ions to try and maintain electrical neutrality. All those excessive hydrogen ions will lead to acidosis. Therefore, you get a hyperchloremic, high chloride acidosis because of the too many hydrogen ions. Also, your chloride ions will impair bicarbonate resorption. So, you, your bicarb remains low. Is that a problem? Is metabolic acidosis a problem? What can it do to the body? Um, well, you don't want to remain in an acidotic yeah. state. Um, and you rely on your bicarb to, as, as you've highlighted earlier, as, as a buffer. Yeah. Um, so if you're in other acidotic states, you, you've lost that uh, safety net ultimately. Um, so again, if you know, AKI, uh, if you've got respiratory conditions, sometimes you rely on bicarb to act as something that can prevent you remaining in an acidotic state. Absolutely. And metabolic acidosis decreases myocardial function. It decreases cardiac output and also renal and skeletal perfusion. So it can affect your heart and it can also clearly affect the kidneys and exacerbate the acute kidney injury that you may already have developed. So this is why we use normal saline. This, sorry, this is why and we, have, we are cautious with normal saline. However, the NICE guidelines and also the American Diabetes Association guidelines still uses normal saline. And this is because it is the only fluid in the United Kingdom which has pre-measured levels of potassium. So it's safe to give. Because if I need to add potassium to a bag, which we shouldn't be doing, we don't know how much potassium the patient's getting. It's very dangerous. So the National Patient Safety Agency says we need to use a fluid which has pre-measured levels of potassium. And normal saline is the only one that does that. So therefore, it really is a safety mechanism as well. There is a few papers comparing the use of normal saline, Hartman's or plasmolite or other fluids. And a paper by Frontiers of Endocrinology, which was in 2017, looked at comparing the different types of fluid. And actually, there was no difference in clinical outcomes when plasmolite or Hartman's was used compared to normal saline. So therefore, as yet, it still remains a very controversial and contentious area in the management of diabetic ketoacidosis. One thing that I will say here is that we never use colloid solutions. So when I, when I first qualified a few years, a few years ago, <laughs> longer than a few years ago, um, we always tended to use a lot more colloid-based solutions. Do you have any experience of using colloid-based solutions? Uh, yeah. So my practice goes back a few years as well. So gel effusing, yes. those kind of things that, you know, particularly if you've got low blood pressure, um, was the go-to fluid. Yes, gel effusing, that brings back a few memories. So that was something that we used to use a lot of a long time ago. Again, there's been a lot of evidence now to say that when you use gel effusing or your colloid, it can increase mortality and also contribute to acute kidney injury. So it's something that we don't use anymore. And I haven't seen a bag of gel effusing for years. <laughs> so interesting. So just to give you a little bit of information on ketosis prone diabetes, or as it may also be known, type 1.5 diabetes, they lack the typical phenotype of type 1 diabetes. They're often male, middle-aged, have a high body mass index, family history of type 2 diabetes. 
And no one really understands the mechanism of why their high glucose level cannot activate secretion of insulin in the pancreas. But the patients will present the same as DKA and the treatment is the same. But after a few months, they no longer require insulin and diet and oral hyperglycemics are sufficient. And they are glutamic acid, decarboxylase antibody negative and anti-islet cell antibody negative too. So slightly different to our type 1 diabetics. So just wanted to let you know as well about our patient who got a lot better within 24, 48 hours and went home. So good uh, fluid resuscitation and insulin use and he was much better. So just want to recap your key learning points then, Hussein. Yeah, so there's many, uh, but my top four are um, the pathophysiology. So thanks very much for recapping that, how ketones increase hydrogen ions, which drives the acidosis. Um, That four-step plan uh, that the guidelines highlight, fluid resuscitation, fixed rate insulin infusions, uh, and making sure you're keeping an eye on their electrolytes. Yep. Uh, on that note, making sure that your nurses know uh, your, about your normal saline bags, whether they've got potassium pre-prepared in it already. The fact that DKA is a medical emergency and it can affect all the organs. So look out for cerebral edema, arrhythmias, and an AKI. Excellent. Good. So thank you everybody for listening to this week's podcast on DKA. And thank you for listening to Series 1. We are going to take a break and we will be back in the new year. However, we will be having an outtake Christmas special, so look out for that. I would also like to say a big thank you to Hussein, who has been my fantastic co-presenter for Series 1, who is now going off to work in Brighton as a respiratory registrar and sadly leaving the podcast. However, he will be back for the occasional episode. In the new year, we've got some fantastic guest presenters. We're going to be looking at maternal medicine, toxicology and palliative care. Goodbye.